Chapter One of Popular History of Ireland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more free audiobooks, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Popular History of Ireland From the Earliest Period to the Emancipation of the Catholics by Thomas Darcy McGee. Book Six The Native, the Naturalized, and the English Interest. Chapter One Civil War in England, its effects on the Anglo-Irish, the Knights of St. John, general desire of the Anglo-Irish to naturalize themselves among the native population, a policy of non-intercourse between the races resolved on in England. The closing years of the reign of Edward II of England were endangered by the same partiality for favorites which had disturbed its beginning. The dispensers, father and son, played at this period the part which Gaveston had performed twenty years earlier. The barons, who undertook to rid their country of this pampered family, had, however, at their head Queen Isabella, sister of the King of France, who had separated from her husband under a pretended fear of violence at his hands, but in reality to enjoy more freely her criminal intercourse with her favourite, Mortimer. With the aid of French and Flemish mercenaries, they compelled the unhappy Edward to fly from London to Bristol, whence he was pursued, captured, and after being confined for several months in different fortresses, was secretly murdered in the autumn of 1327, by thrusting a red-hot iron into his bowels. His son Edward, a lad of fifteen years of age, afterward the celebrated Edward III, was proclaimed king, though the substantial power remained for some years longer with Queen Isabella, and her paramour, now elevated to the rank of Earl of March. In the year 1330, however, their guilty prosperity was brought to a sudden close. Mortimer was seized by surprise, tried by his peers, and executed at Tyburn. Isabella was imprisoned for life, and the young king, at the age of eighteen, began in reality that reign, which through half a century's continuance proved so glorious and advantageous for England. It will be apparent that during the last few years of the second, and under the minority of the third Edward, the Anglo-Irish barons would be left to pursue undisturbed their own particular interests and enmities. The renewal of war with Scotland, on the death of King Robert Bruce, and the subsequent protracted wars with France, which occupied, with some intervals of truce, nearly thirty years of the third Edward's reign, left ample time for the growth of abuses of every description among the descendants of those who had invaded Ireland, under the pretext of its reformation, both in morals and in government. The contribution of an auxiliary force to aid him in his foreign wars was all the warlike king expected from his lords of Ireland, and at so cheap a price they were well pleased to hold their possessions under his guarantee. At Halidon Hill the Anglo-Irish, led by Sir John Darcy, distinguished themselves against the Scots in 1333, and at the siege of Calais, under the earls of Kildare and Desmond, they acquired additional reputation in 1347. From this time forward it became a settled maxim of English policy to draft native troops out of Ireland for foreign service, and to send English soldiers into it in times of emergency. In the very year when the tragedy of Edward II's deposition and death was enacted in England, a drama of a lighter kind was performed among his new-made earls in Ireland. The Lord Arnold de Poor gave mortal offence to Maurice, the first Earl of Desmond, by calling him a rhymer, a term synonymous with potester. To make good his reputation as a bard, the earl summoned his allies, the butlers and Birminghams, 
while Lepore obtained the aid of his maternal relatives, the de Burghs, and several desperate conflicts took place between them. The Earl of Kildare, then deputy, summoned both parties to meet him at Kilkenny, but Lepore and William de Burgh fled into England, while the victors, instead of obeying the deputy's summons, enjoyed themselves in ravaging his estate. The following year, A.D. 1328, Lepore and de Burgh returned from England, and were reconciled with Desmond and Ormond by the meditation of the new deputy, Roger Outlaw, prior of the Knights of the Hospital at Kilmanham. In honour of this reconciliation de Burgh gave a banquet at the castle, and Maurice of Desmond reciprocated by another the next day, in St. Patrick's Church, though it was then, as the Anglo-Irish analyst remarks, the penitential season of Lent. A work of peace and reconciliation, calculated to spare the effusion of Christian blood, may have been thought some justification for this irreverent use of a consecrated edifice. The mention of the Lord Deputy, Sir Roger Outlaw, the second prior of his order, though not the last, who wielded the highest political power over the English settlements, naturally leads to the mention of the establishment in Ireland of the illustrious orders of the Temple and the Hospital. The first foundation of the Elder Order is attributed to Strongbow, who erected for them a castle at Kilmainham, on the high ground to the south of Liffey, about a mile distant from the Danish wall of Old Dublin. Here the Templars flourished for nearly a century and a half, until the process for their suppression was instituted under Edward II in 1308. Thirty members of the order were imprisoned and examined in Dublin, before three Dominican inquisitors, Father Richard Balbin, minister of the Order of St. Dominic in Ireland, Fathers Philip de Slane and Hugh de St. Ledger. The decision arrived at was the same as in France and in England. The order was condemned and suppressed, and their priory of Kilmainham, with sixteen benefices in the diocese of Dublin, and several others in Ferns, Meath, and Dromore, passed to the succeeding order in 1311. The state maintained by the priors of Kilmainham, in their capacious residence, often rivalled that of the Lord's justices. But though their rents were ample, they did not collect them without service. Their house might justly be regarded as an advanced fortress on the south side of the city, constantly open to attacks from the mountain tribes of Wicklow. Although their vows were for the Holy Land, they were ever ready to march at the call of the English deputies, and their banner, blazoned with the Agnus Dei, waved over the bloodiest border phrase of the fourteenth century. The priors of Kilmainham sat as barons in the parliaments of the Pale, and the office was considered the first in ecclesiastical rank among the regular orders. During the second quarter of this century an extraordinary change became apparent in the manners and customs of the descendants of the Normans, Flemings, and Cambrians, whose ancestors, a hundred years earlier, were strangers in the land. Instead of intermarrying exclusively among themselves, the prevailing fashion became to seek for Irish wives, and to bestow their daughters on Irish husbands. Instead of clinging to the language of Normandy or England, they began to cultivate the native speech of the country. Instead of despising Irish law, every nobleman was now anxious to have his brehen, his bard, and his sanachi. The children of the barons were given to be fostered by Milesian mothers, and trained in the early exercises so minutely prescribed by Milesian education. Kildare, Ormond, and Desmond adopted the old military usages of exacting coin and livery, horse-meat and man's-meat, from their feudal tenants. The tie of gossipred, one of the most fondly cherished by the native population, was multiplied between the two races, 
and under the wise encouragement of a domestic dynasty, might have become a powerful bond of social union. In Connaught and Munster, where the proportion of native to naturalized was largest, the change was completed almost in a generation, and could never afterwards be wholly undone. In Ulster the English element in the population towards the end of this century was almost extinct, but in Meath and Leinster, and that portion of Munster immediately bordering on Meath and Leinster, the process of amalgamation required more time than the policy of the kings of England allowed it to obtain. The first step taken to counteract their tendency to hibernicize themselves was to bestow additional honours on the great families. The barony of Offaly was enlarged into the earldom of Kildare, the lordship of Carrick into the earldom of Ormond, the title of Desmond was conferred on Maurice Fitz Thomas Fitzgerald, and that of Louth on the Baron de Birmingham. Nor were they empty honours, they were accompanied with something better. The royal liberties were formally conceded, in no less than nine great districts, to their several lords. Those of Carlow, Wexford, Kilkenny, Kildare, and Leeks, had been inherited by the heirs of the Earl Marshal's five daughters. Four other counties, Palatine, were now added, Ulster, Meath, Ormond, and Desmond. The absolute lords of those palatinates, says Sir John Davis, made barons and knights, exercised high justice within all their territories, erected courts for civil and criminal causes, and for their own revenues, in the same form in which the king's courts were established at Dublin. They constituted their own judges, seneschals, sheriffs, coroners, and escheaters. So that the king's writ did not run in their counties, which took up more than two parts of the English colony, but ran only in the church lands lying within the same, which was, therefore, called the cross, wherein the sheriff was nominated by the king. By high justice is meant the power of life and death, which was hardly consistent with even a semblance of subjection. No wonder such absolute lords should be found little disposed to obey the summons of deputies, like Sir Ralph Ufford and Sir John Morris, men of merely knightly rank, whose equals they had the power to create, by the touch of their swords. For a season their new honours quickened the dormant loyalties of the recipients. Desmond, at the head of ten thousand men, joined the Lord Deputy, Sir John Darcy, to suppress the insurgent tribes of South Leinster. The Earls of Ulster and Ormond united their forces for an expedition into West Meath against the brave McGonagans and their allies. But even these services, so complicated were public and private motives in the breasts of the actors, did not allay the growing suspicion of what were commonly called the Old English, in the minds of the English king and his council. Their resolution seems to have been fixed to entrust no native of Ireland with the highest office in his own country, in accordance with which decision Sir Anthony Lucy was appointed, 1331, Sir John Darcy, 1332-34, to again in 1341, and Sir Ralph Ufford, 1343-1346. to During the incumbency of these English knights, whether acting as justiciaries or as deputies, the first systemic attempts were made to prevent, both by the exercise of patronage or by penal legislation, the fusion of races, which was so universal a tendency of that age. And although these attempts were discontinued on the recommencement of war with France in 1345, the conviction of their utility had seized too strongly on the tenacious will of Edward III to be wholly abandoned. The peace of Brittany in 1360 gave him leisure to turn again his thoughts in that direction. The following year he sent over his third son, Lionel, Duke of Clarence and Earl of Ulster, in right of his wife, who boldly announced his object to be the total separation, into hostile camps, of the two populations. 
This first attempt to enforce non-intercourse between the natives and the naturalized deserves more particular mention. It appears to have begun in the time of Sir Anthony Lucy, when the King's Council sent over certain articles of reform, in which it was threatened that if the native nobility were not more attentive in discharging their duties to the King, His Majesty would resume into his own hands all the grants made to them by his royal ancestors or himself, as well as enforced payment of debts due to the Crown, which had been formerly remitted. From some motive these articles were allowed, after being made public, to remain a dead letter, until the administration of Darcy, Edward's confidential agent in many important transactions, English and Irish. They were proclaimed with additional emphasis by his deputy, who convoked a parliament or council at Dublin to enforce them as law. The same year, 1342, new ordinance came from England, prohibiting the public employment of men born or married, or possessing estates in Ireland, and declaring that all offices of state should be filled in that country by fit Englishmen, having lands, tenements, and benefices in England. To this sweeping prescription the Anglo-Irish, as well townsmen as nobles, resolved to offer every resistance, and by the convocation of the earls of Desmond, Ormond, and Kildare, they agreed to meet for that purpose at Kilkenny. Accordingly, what is called Darcy's Parliament met at Dublin in October, while Desmond's rival assembly gathered at Kilkenny in November. The proceedings of the former, if it agreed to any, are unrecorded, but the latter dispatched to the king, by the hands of the prior of Kilmainham, a remonstrance couched in Norman French, the court language, in which they reviewed the state of the country, deplored the recovery of so large a portion of the former conquest by the old Irish, accused in round terms the successive English officials sent into the land, with a desire suddenly to enrich themselves at the expense both of sovereign and subject, pleaded boldly their own loyal services, not only in Ireland, but in the French and Scottish wars, and finally claimed the protection of the Great Charter, that they might not be ousted of their estates, without being called in judgment. Edward, sorely in need of men and subsidies for another expedition to France, returned them a conciliatory answer, summoning them to join him in arms with their followers at an early day, and although a vigorous effort was made by Sir Ralph Ufford to enforce the Articles of 1331, and the Ordinance of 1341, by the capture of the Earls of Desmond and Kildare, and by military execution on some of their followers, the policy of non-intercourse was tacitly abandoned for some years after the remonstrance of Kilkenny. In 1353, under the Lord Deputy Rokeby, an attempt was made to revive it, but it was quickly abandoned, and two years later Maurice, Earl of Desmond, the leader of the opposition, was appointed to the office of Lord Justice for life. Unfortunately, that high-spirited nobleman died the year of his appointment, before its effects could begin to be felt. The only legal concession which marked his period was a royal writ constituting the Parliament of the Pale, and the Court of Last Resort for appeals from the decisions of the King's courts in that province. A recurrence to the former favourite policy signalised the year 1357, when a new set of ordinances were received from London, denouncing the penalties of treason against all who intermarried, or had relations of fostering with the Irish, and proclaiming war upon all kerns and idle men found within the English districts. Still severer measures in the same direction were soon afterwards decided upon, by the English king and his council. Before relating the farther history of this penal code as applied to race, we must recall the reader's attention to the important date of the Kilkenny Remonstrance, 1342. From that year may be distinctly traced the growth of two parties among the subject of the English kings in Ireland. 
At one time they are distinguished as the Old English and the New English, at another as English by birth and English by blood. The New English, fresh from the imperial island, seem to have usually conducted themselves with a haughty sense of superiority. The Old English, more than half hibernicized, confronted these strangers with all the self-complacency of natives of the soil on which they stood. In their frequent visits to the imperial capital, the old English were made sensibly to feel that their country was not there, and as often as they went, they returned with renewed ardour to the land of their possessions and their birth. Time also had thrown its reverent glory round the names of the first invaders, and to be descended from the companions of Earl Richard, or the captains who accompanied King John, was a source of family pride, second only to that which the native princes cherished in tracing up their lineage to Milesius of Spain. There were many reasons, good, bad, and indifferent, for the descendants of Norman adventurers adopting Celtic names, laws, and customs, but not the least potent, perhaps, was the fostering of family pride and family dependence, which, judged from our present standpoints, were two of the worst possible preparations for our national success in modern times. End of chapter 1 read by Sibella Denton. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org.